and welcome to IOM3 Investigates, the podcast series of the Institute of Materials, Minerals and Mining. We are one of the UK's major science and engineering institutions and our activities are focused on the promotion and development of all aspects of the materials cycle. These include the science, design, engineering and technology of materials, minerals and mining and their practical applications. We facilitate qualifications, professional recognition and development, share knowledge and provide networking services to a global membership and wider community. We hope you enjoy our podcast series. Hello, I'm Arnold Joseph and welcome to our IOM3 podcast looking at Black History Month. I'm a diversity lead for IOM3 and news writer for Materials World and Clay Technology. As you know, it is currently Black History Month and we wanted to use this platform to celebrate black achievement, look at how black scientists have paved the way for aspiring scientists and engineers today and talk about how diversity as a whole contributes to innovation. So joining us, we have a few people. I'll let them introduce themselves. Hi, I'm Chris Jackson. I'm a geoscientist, so a geologist based at Imperial College in London. I'm currently in Norway on sabbatical at the University of Bergen. I'm Nicole Lee. I am a senior engineer at Fraser Nash Consultancy and I mainly work in the nuclear industry. Hi all, I'm uh, Faisal Hussain. I'm a chartered materials engineer. I work for Baker Hughes in their subsea production system division. Thank you very much. So looking at black history, it'll be a really good start to highlight um, a piece of work or someone's career in history that has shown significant contributions to the scientific community. Faisal, I believe you have someone that you wanted to speak about. Yeah, sure. So reading into the historical achievements of black scientists this month, I I noted two things. One, there's only a handful scribed in the history books. And two, they're all mainly described as the first black person to do A or the first black person to do B. And that was really interesting. It just kind of showed me that really to be a notable black scientist, you had to be remarkable or really stand out from the crowd. So I found one chap and his name was Percy Lavon Julian. He was born in 1899 in Montgomery, Alabama in the USA. His mum and dad were both educated. His grandfather was a slave. You know, they lived uh, a fairly normal life. He went to a African-American school which mostly taught skills like blacksmithing and hat making. And this school didn't offer any science courses. And Julian had a keen interest in science. Now, there was a segregated school near their hometown, which was ideal for him. But this particular school did not offer African-American students places beyond the eighth grade. For us, that's known as year nine, which is crazy. So the story for Percy really begins with a series of knockbacks and how he sort of persevered through them. So his first knockback was the fact that the school that he went to did not offer any science courses. So what did he do? He learned through books and through reading at home, in his dad's library and and going to libraries, he realized that he wanted to pursue chemistry. But his parents were less convinced because obviously they've lived and they wanted him to become a doctor because there were jobs for African-Americans in the segregated hospitals in the US. But jobs in chemistry were all limited to all white institutions. And that's a really important word there, all white institutions, all white society, because he felt that throughout his career. He persevered through that. And with the help of his teacher, he went on to study chemistry 
at Depot University. Whilst at the university, he was denied college accommodation. So instead, what did he have to do? He found an attic space in a fraternity house, which he paid whilst doing cleaning jobs. On top of that, he had to take additional special classes because the education he received before university was of a low standard. But how did he persevere? When he graduated, he was the top of his class. His next ambition was to go on and do a doctorate or a master's. But lots of universities denied him of a place because of his race. And this was a, you know, this was a, a very, very common fact. And so what did he have to do? He had to find an, an alternative. And for that, for him, that was a teaching job in an African-American college. And then so two years later, you know, he, he was still keen to do a master's. And his peers noticed that this person, Julian, is very, very talented. So they pushed and he won a scholarship to do a master's at Harvard but he was denied to do a PhD at Harvard. Why? Because of his race. Harvard were worried that white students would resent being taught by an African-American. And that meant that that was the end of his stay at Harvard. He then came back to Depaul University to teach there through the help of some of uh, his old professors. But he, he again was denied promotion there because they would not appoint an African-American professor even though Percy Julian had invented and uh, created lots of things in the field of uh, chemistry. He was looking around for a new job and, you know, he had fellow chemists that worked with him and a chap called Joseph Pickle was offered a job at DuPont. But Julian himself was declined, despite Julian having way better qualifications as an organic chemist. And they apologized and they said, we were unaware he was a Negro. And this was a common occurrence for him because in, in the next company that he applied for, the Institute of Paper Chemistry in Appleton, Wisconsin, Appleton was a sundown town. And a sundown town forbids African-Americans from staying overnight, stating directly, no Negro should be bed or boarded overnight in Appleton. So you can see the series of knockbacks that Percy Julian received throughout his early career whilst you know really whilst you're still in education and still trying to find his feet but he persevered and soon after he received a position of director of research at Glidden's Sawyer Products division in Chicago. Now you know you can see that he was a director within a company that's a really you know prominent position. However he was not welcomed in Chicago. He and his family moved to a place called Oak Park, a prosperous universally white district in the 1950s. And despite having some supportive neighbors, his house was firebombed twice in the space of two years. Now, you can see the series of knockbacks that he had. And when Julian reflected on his career after retirement, he said this, I feel that my own good country robbed me of the chance for some of the great experiences that I would have liked to live through. Instead, I took a job where I could get one and try to make the best of it. I have been perhaps a good chemist, but not the chemist that I dreamed of being. Now, that's saying something, because if I tell you that he was an American research chemist and a pioneer in chemical synthesis of medicinal drugs, where he received over 130 chemical patents 
he was inducted into the National Academy of Scientists as the second African-American scientist to be inducted. He was the first African-American to receive a doctorate in chemistry. You'd think to yourself, if he had been given all of the opportunities at the right time, where would he be now? When he was working um, at Depot University, he synthesized a drug called, oh, it's a really difficult word. <laughs> so let me just see if I can say it. You know what, I'm just gonna leave it. I'm just not gonna bother. I'm not, I'm not a chemist, so I won't say it. But, but basically, <laughs> this, this drug was only available in its natural source. And the natural source was a caliber bean. His pioneering research led to the process that made this drug readily available for the treatment of glaucoma. It was the first of Julian's lifetime achievements in the chemical synthesis. And when he was synthesizing this drug and when he published the paper, he was in a race against another very famous chemist known as Robert Robison from Oxford, Oxford University. Robert Robison went on to receive a Nobel Prize in chemistry in 1947. But, Julie, but Percy Julian beat him to publishing and synthesizing this drug, which was world leading and saved lots of people's eyesight. So you can see from that alone that he was up there with the best. So for him to not have achieved his ultimate dream of being the best, uh, is, is a hard pill to swallow for a lot of people. Um, his daughter now goes on and gives many speeches uh, and talks and discusses her father and a lot of his achievements. But it's always a question that, you know, a lot of people ask themselves, you know, what could have been? And I think, I believe in 2007, there was a documentary that was released called The, the Forgotten Genius. It's quite, quite a powerful, powerful word. But one historian describes his story as a great accomplishment of heroic efforts and overcoming tremendous odds. A story about who we are and what we stand for and the challenges that have been there and the challenges that are still with us. And that was in 2007. And, and it's clear that these challenges are still with us today. I think he's a great person for an example of just the sheer level of resilience that's needed in order to achieve the same amount if you know less for people that aren't having to deal with being a person of color um i th also thought it was really interesting what you said about it seems that for black scientists you have to be the best of the best otherwise you don't get any recognition um do you think that still exists to some degree today well definitely i mean so i, I was looking into uh the nobel prizes that are awarded in science and uh, I think everyone's aware that the Nobel Prize announcements coincide with Black History Month. And that unfortunately for, uh, for black scientists is a painful reminder that of the more than 900 Nobel laureates, only 14 have been black and none in science. And they are either in peace or social sciences. And an interesting fact there is that by contrast, there are 70 Asian laureates the majority of which are in science. And that's purely because in Asia, uh, places like Japan, China, they have funding, great universities, and where you have, in order to win a Nobel Prize, it helps for you to be at a prestigious institution 
and a position to lead big, expensive science projects. And it just seems that it's very difficult for black scientists, especially in the past, to get to these top positions in these top universities. I mean, look at Percy. He did what he did at very standard universities. He wasn't given the opportunity to carry out his research at Harvard, where they had state-of-the-art laboratories, where they had state-of-the-art equipment, and they were leading with funding. So instead, he had to do his thing. He had to make do, essentially. And with making do, he achieved great things. So it, it only kind of makes us imagine what could have been. But yeah, I, I, I do think that this issue is still with us. And, and the, just the fact that Nobel Prizes are awarded to scientists year on year and a black scientist hasn't won it is quite worrying. Yeah, it's an amazing story, Faisal. <laughs> incredible. And it probably says something I've never heard of this person. Um, and you hear about it on a podcast. And you just wonder how many more stories there are of people like that out there and stories which have a significantly less pleasant ending people who just slip off the radar fully or just don't get the recognition they deserve or their achievements are stolen by others and presented as their own by other people so I think it's incredible incredible story to hear and and and, and there are some there are some studies which kind of try to quantify the extra effort that's required by black scientists to get the same amount of recognition as what you know as white scientists and, and how you measure that recognition varies, whether it's the amount of proposals they have to put in to get the same amount of money from a funding council, you know, and the numbers I've heard is between, I think it was between like, uh, you know, 50% to 100% more effort is required if you're black versus white in terms of trying to advance in academia in particular, I'm referring to here, but it maybe is more generally translatable to, you know, broader society perhaps. So it's, it's yeah. I mean, I'd have just given up. <laughs> I would have been the exact same. I mean, he really persevered. And you can just, like you said, you can imagine how many people would have given up at any one of those particular moments in his life. You know, it could, you could have given... The fact that his parents were less convinced by his chosen route just goes to show that that's the first hurdle your parents who are, you know, I guess you could say the same colour as you, uh, and they're going through the same thing, but they're obviously trying to protect him. They wanted to protect him from that big bad world of racism uh, that he would go on to face. Imagine if, you know, from an intersectional point of view as well, I guess, um, Nicole and Shardell, if you, God forbid you were a black woman, or, you know, or you were a racial ethnic minority and a woman as well. Yeah, I think there's definitely those, those levels, and I think that's where intersectionality comes in. Um, but just um, in regards to something else that Faisal said, which was interesting as well, um, is when you started your research that, you know, you assume the information's out there and readily available, but actually it's a struggle. There's something that I witnessed when I was um, writing an article last year to look for UK black scientists. And Chris, you also mentioned previously about not having the accessibility to the information and what's your what's your reasoning for that why do you think that's a thing yeah so um you know I, I don't really have a story to tell about a famous black scientist because you know that's that's not my area of expertise and it probably says something that i don't have like at my fingertips you know two dozen black scientists in history to talk about 
And so I don't really feel qualified to kind of bring any of those stories out because I don't really personally know enough about them. And I think that suggests two things, right? One is those people have been well hidden, probably deliberately, and very unfortunately, clearly from view by, you know, history. Um, So it's not as easy to find out and they're not on TV and they're not in books. They don't have Wikipedia entries and they don't, you know, there's lots of things that those people don't have, even though they're, their achievements are probably with us in everyday life. And secondarily, I think for me, um, you know, I'm a geologist and I spend most of my time and effort, you know, trying to study the science that I study as well as kind of be with my family and friends. And so, you know, the kind of notion that, you know, a black scientist should know all the other black scientists is a kind of really curious one because we don't, because we're busy being just normal people in some ways like all the non-black people are being able to do just like going to work and hanging out with their friends and family and they're not then coming home and saying well i need to read up on black scientists so i i can talk to my non-black friends about all these black scientists um so i guess i've enjoyed over the last couple of years hearing more of these stories but i guess in some sense i've been very sort of self-consumed with trying to just you know kind of manage my own sort of business as a black scientist and and, 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 and and when I've heard those stories of other black scientists drawing strength from those stories to power myself along. When I was still at university on a research placement in Belgium I came across a PhD student who was um, studying at the University of Manchester and he'd, he'd come over to Belgium for a few days because the company was funding his uh, PhD and he was uh, he's from Nigeria and I, I think he did his undergraduate night in Nigeria at a university there and he, he was offered a PhD at the University of Manchester in the UK and obviously for, the, for him this was a, a great accomplishment already. I remember he was, in, he was in Belgium for a period of two days to carry out some work in, in the laboratories that, you know, that we were based in and for me you know it was just a regular day but I just noticed that this guy he was there from nine till five but his work ethic was unbelievable. And he would just work and work and work. I asked him, I said, why don't you go just take, why don't you have a lunch break with us? Why don't you just, you know, come and have a coffee break? And he says, Faisal, I'm so grateful for this opportunity. I want to make the most of it. These opportunities don't come around often. And for me, I'm so grateful that I am here and I want to make the most of every single second. And for me, it was a kind of a realization that where opportunities are lacking, those people that are given them tend to work so much harder. And in a way, I could say that for me, it was almost given on a plate, born and bred in the UK, good education, everything was there. But for him, it was probably a lot more different. You know, growing up in Nigeria, we don't know what his background was, but he was definitely very very hard working and there's obviously a reason for it and it makes me wonder if uh, if Percy Julian was the same he had to work so much harder to be noticed to be recognized against his fellow peers who were who were, who were white or Asian so yeah it's uh, it, you know it just kind of goes to show that that still does exist today and people do realize and maybe not obviously not just for black people but anyone who isn't given an opportunity on a plate who has to work very hard for it, where it's a very, a very big str- struggle, and maybe even in most cases, a sacrifice for the family to get that person to where they are. So uh, I find it difficult, but that does still exist. And 
and I really credit those people because they deserve to be where they are and they deserve good things. Yeah, absolutely. So when we actually, you know, looking at Percy Jackson, but many other black scientists in history, to what extent would you say that they have paved a way? Because obviously the amount of hard work and the obstacles that they had to overcome to accomplish what they did, how has that paved a way for scientists and innovation today? All covered a lot of things that are really important, I guess, it's important for existing black innovators and scientists to carry on doing what they're doing so they can be role models for younger generations because for a lot of younger people especially people of color it's hard to it's hard to be what you can't see basically and to have that visibility of other people doing something that you might aspire to be one day is really useful and to have people to possibly talk to about potential careers in science if that's what you're aspiring to is really valuable yeah absolutely anyone to add on that point i think he definitely broke the barriers right it's always hard to be the first once someone's done it the first time the second round time the third round time is a lot easier uh, especially for those who have been, who have let you know the first black american african black american into the into the company into the university into the workplace having a second person is always a lot easier and I think that kind of if you just do a role reversal being uh you know being a black person applying for a job where you see that you know there are people working there who are similar to me you think okay I've got a good chance here and you always have that perception I guess they always had that perception in the past and maybe now it's uh it's becoming easier yeah I think I think one of the challenges though remains is this I think there's an assumption, is there, is there not, or at least I see it, that, you know, if you're at the vanguard in terms of your, you know, your, your, if you're black and you make it into a position, that you are then going to advocate really strongly for other black people and you're going to be very vocal. And, and that comes with a huge risk, of course, because if you are in the minority in those positions, the louder you are, the more you can self-limit yourself because that, even though you've been let into the club, you're not allowed on the dance floor, right? You, you, still, are, you still are slightly marginalised in that respect. And, and and you do regularly hear stories of, of, of minorities of any description of you know not just not just racial minorities who you know classic drawbridge pulling where they get into a position and it's quite comfortable once you get you know your hands on the levers of power and you get a bit of money and and there's absolutely no compulsion to to reach down or out and try and help other people up so I think you know, just blazing that trail is, is not enough in terms of your own achievements. The real trailblazing surely comes at least partly from then going on perhaps to risking some of yourself and your own, com- you know, how, how comfortable you are yourself, risking elements of that to help others who are not, who, who don't yet have that power. So do you think there's too much pressure on, say, ethnic minorities within our fields to not only just let their work speak for themselves, but to also be an advocate? Yeah, you have to be more than just a black person looking at rocks or looking at chemistry or looking at something else, right? You, you, there's an expectation you probably have to behave even better and like and, and be a good citizen within whether it's an academic institution or you know like Nicole and uh, Faisal, whether it's in an industrial setting. You know, you probably have to keep your nose clean and 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 then there's that idea that you know upsetting senior white people by sticking your elbows out is definitely not good, right? You know, and, and, and that, that's not conducive to, to being a good citizen. Although it is, right? I think I would argue 
pissing people off and being a bit rowdy is probably sometimes needed and somebody has to do it. And sometimes it just so happens it's a black person who has to do it. Or it just so happens it's a woman who has to do it. But they probably are running a higher risk of being marginalised again, even in that senior level. Yeah, I think if you do come from a marginalised group, you do tend to be put under more scrutiny and there's more sort of pressure and responsibility to do things above and beyond the standard person and what you do will be sort of looked at and judged in more detail than say the average person who isn't a person of colour or otherwise. So um, how, because we're looking at, you know, innovators through history and what they've done but you know if we were to speak about how diversity today can contribute to innovation what, what are your thoughts yeah sure i mean so you know I, I can take the example of innovation means different things to different people so if we think about innovation in in africa for example their innovation might involve developing new forms of irrigation developing new forms of clean energy or renewable energy, where it's a lot, it's very difficult, especially in small villages and, and remote areas, especially where you have corrupt governments that are not feeding the funding through where they should be. So I think in places like that, innovation is really key. And sometimes that innovation cannot be done in the UK or the US because the priority is always very different. Thank you. Um, does anyone else have any ideas of how diversity can contribute to innovation? Yeah, I think one, one issue with, um, you know, there are studies showing that, you know, if you have more diverse workers and a more diverse workforce, however you define that diversity, you can come up with, you ask better questions, come up with better solutions and produce better products. And, you know, and that's a clear societal benefit, of course. The thing that makes me always nervous about questions like this is, is it kind of, almost logically leads people into a discussion about the bottom line, like, well, financially, how much is this black person worth in terms of what can they bring me in terms of innovation or what can, what can this group of people bring us in terms of solving this problem? And I think, you know, the solving the problem bit is fine in, the, in a very human sense, but there are certain people who only be incentivized to engage in, you know, broadening participation in a certain area if they think it's going to make them money. And then as soon as that, um, as soon as that motivation is gone for them, they no longer care because it's not a, it's not an inherent part of their character, not an inherent part of their of their humanity that they want to have a, a fair and equitable society or workforce. They they just want to make money out of it. So that, I always think that question is quite an interesting one because you know, maybe it's just the way I think is the innovation bit's fine, but then often when you talk about innovation, I think industry, and then I think industry normally is driven by shareholders, and and they're driven by something else. But I don't work. I don't work in industry anymore, so I, I don't know. If Nicole, well, Nicole and Fazi sort of talked a bit about that. But whether you know, that's often something you've heard in the industrial arena that you know diversity is good value. Where it's you know, it's it's kind of worth doing, worth in you know, yeah. I think it's very hard to quantify value that's associated with diversity, and. In recent years, it has become better. They ha people have started acknowledging that diversity and inclusion is an important thing in the workplace because if everyone in your team it comes from the same backgrounds in terms of um, cultures, or, um, class or education, then how are you supposed to have diversity of thought if everyone thinks the same thing? 
So I think it's important and really valuable for different people from different backgrounds to come into a company and offer a fresh perspective and just to capitalize on each of their experiences. Yeah, so essentially, I guess it's how do we change diversity being valued like monetarily to actually um, valuing the perspectives um, and how the diverse perspectives can impact innovation in, in that regard, I guess. So, Nicole, you were just saying that you've seen a change. How have you seen a change in that value of diversity? and what more needs to be done to to change that as well in the future so in my company recently there has been a board of people set up to look at diversity and inclusion definitely i think compared to a few years ago it is becoming more common for companies to start considering dni initiatives and that's probably due to a greater awareness of just the rather large gap that exists between white people and non-white people or just marginalized groups in general yeah i mean i've been imperial for 16 years in academia for yeah about 16 17 years i guess and there's what i I guess i have seen is more open discussions around quite thorny issues and obviously black lives matter this year sort of blowing the lid off that and there's very very public and painful conversations happening but I've sensed that sort of been increasing over time, um, at least in academia and at least in Imperial where I've been. What I haven't seen is so much action. So I guess you see lots of groups, and Nicole, you just referred to groups and subcommittees and subcommittees and subcommittees being set up to discuss quote-unquote issues. And a lot of the issues are known, and a lot of the solutions are known, and what they require is money and action. And, you know, I think like setting up groups and committees is a very handy way of making it look like you're doing something and to make yourself feel like you're doing something. But actually to to make this a more committing step of actually doing something that changes something is is, is harder for some people, partly because they're just nervous in that space. You know, if we do this, are we going to be looked at in a poor way by the existing people who hold power? And then also because some people are just inherently racist and they don't want to make a change. So, the, the, you know, if they make a committee, they don't have to commit anything, um, anything real or put any kind of, you know, cash on the table. So, yeah, so I think in some sense, everything's been getting better slightly. The discussion and the talk in the committees have been increasing at a faster rate than the actual change, but there has been some change. So I shouldn't be too, too mardy about this. So, you know, there has been some positive stuff out there um, and you know we've seen ring fence scholarships we've seen you know scholarships of black academics we've seen uh, you know fellowships of visiting black scientists we've seen you know we've seen we've seen things which didn't exist i would say you know 15 16 17 years ago so that's a, that's a positive thing but we can't take our foot off the gas now you know i think 2020 has really powered us up to to ask for more and demand more and, and, and fight for more change, go further and faster. I think it's very much easier to just sort of sit back and be comfortable doing what you're currently doing and not be at the forefront of that movement for change. It's easier to look at other companies and just sort of only make things happen when things have been done elsewhere and it's the most common or mainstream thing to do. And it does require people who are passionate about the cause to actually make a difference rather than just sit there talking about it for months and months. (laughs) That's very true. 
I'm just thinking, you know, there's certain institutions who are obsessed about what other institutions are doing and they'll only do it if the other institution does it because notionally somewhere in the minds of a manager, they're like, oh my goodness, somebody's going to write a newspaper article and have a lead paper with this metric in soon. So we better go into it rather than saying, these are our values. This is what we value. This is, our, this is, this is the humanity we want to show and we're going to do this. It doesn't matter what these people down the road are doing. And that is what I find the most singularly painful thing about all of this discussion is again like the idea of it being monetized but again the idea that it's uh, it's it's going to be measured in some way and therefore we need to do it because it's going to be measured rather than fundamentally we believe that this is the right thing to do yeah and how many companies would actively publish a gender pay gap report if it wasn't in the law that they were supposed to do so every year so do you think there's because obviously one of the things that we spoke about earlier as well is the fact that as you know as a black person or as a person of color you already have to work harder and you know obviously um with your careers they're not like careers that you get easily so do you feel like there's this element of risk of actually then once you've got your careers oh you know having to challenge the institute in which you're now currently a part of from, a, from an academic perspective, yeah, absolutely. Like I referred to earlier on, there is a, you know, you get that platform, as they say, and then you can choose what to do with it. And you can undermine yourself by fighting the very system which sort of got you into the platform, onto the platform, if that makes sense. So you, but I just think it's worth it because I think, I just think we're, we, we are people, we're humans, and we were a type of human, non-academic human, before we became academics, in my case. And therefore, I just guess my personality is that, I, you know, I want the best, I want to fight for equality and justice, and I, want, and, and, and I would do that even if I wasn't academic. It just so happens I'm an academic. So there's an academic space there to have those fights in and to try and, you know, make things better. So um, does it come with a risk? Yes, but I think it's worth it. And I don't want to be in a system which is still exclusionary and to be seen to be passively upholding that system by not speaking out. And if I lose a little bit here and there, I think it's worth it. For me, I mean, I've worked in a few companies, but I always find it very difficult to make any minor changes. So, I, you know, I, I'm a, my, my, my faith background is that I'm a Muslim. So for me, it's always quite important that when I go to a company, that there's a place to pray. And there's been a few companies that I've worked for uh, and I've joined and there's no visible Muslim person. And I always find it very difficult to ask that first question. Firstly, is there a quiet place for me to pray? Because you, you don't, first, you don't want to all of a sudden alienate yourself and make yourself seem like you are some form of a troublemaker. You want to take time out of, time out of your work day to go away and do your own thing and and this and in some cases I've experienced the feeling where you know people don't understand what it means to be a person of faith or what it means to go away and pray and what that means to an individual so for me it's always been a case that I would always sort of tread on eggshells initially until people recognized me as a person as an individual where I kind of was given a bit more of a voice understood what the company was about, understood how strongly they, they really took the idea of diversity and inclusion. Because there are companies that just kind of like, you know, like Chris mentioned, you know, they just have the committees up there as a, as a show. And I've seen that many times as well. Uh, they're there, but they don't do much and they're, they're not allowed to do much. 
but um, but there are also others where I, the companies where I've, I've joined and there's you know there's fellow Muslims that are working there and you know the first thing I'll do is I'll go up to them and I'll ask them I'll say so brothers have you have you found do you know if there's a place to pray here they're like yes there is a place and also we've discussed with the with the company and they're gonna they're going to give us a larger place to pray because they understand how important it is for us and for me those are two extremes actually from one company to another from one company where there was zero place to pray no way i could go somewhere and pray so i had to find my own way of doing it whereas other companies where they openly push you to go and practice your faith as and when you need it um so i've i've, I've experienced both extremes really and i always find that it's whenever i join a company i'm always quite wary i i don't want to come across as a as a troublemaker or someone who's already um you know stating his opinion what he needs what he wants uh and i wait for my opportunity and and a lot of the time that comes with experience so if you stay with the company for a while then you can really then begin to know who it is you need to talk to who holds the strings and sometimes that's what it takes um unfortunately because a lot of people just don't really understand it uh, workplace you know as human beings we spend the majority of our life in workplaces and when you really understand that, you understand that with someone who is of faith, faith isn't just after work. Faith is sort of 24 hours and it's really important to us. And so when, some, when, a, when a company, an employer understands that, that's always very, very comforting. And I think more now so, that's being well understood. So I think it's re related to that. It's really important to have a support network at work or at least just one person who you can talk to about professional things and personal things and someone to confide in when you're not so sure that it's um, okay to do this or to do that and I think that can be hard especially if you're a newcomer to a company or don't have experience of working at other companies to know what the norm is and to know what's acceptable in terms of your your needs and what you need from the company to live your life and do your job efficiently like this idea of racial radicalism right you know it'd be like in 2019 if you turn up saying what are you doing for black people what scholarships do you have for black people what have you got around black lives matter like can you imagine how you'd have been received this time last year <laughs> i mean it would have been like absolutely awful or people have just thought you were thought you were like unhinged in, in saying that and then suddenly everybody's blacking out their instagram feed right it's like the most normal thing to do is to wear a Black Lives Matter t-shirt and go on a march and like shout about racial justice. And then, and then here we are a few months later and, you know, I, I, you know, I go and give a talk with Black in Academia on and I suddenly feel like the radical again because you kind of feel the embers are dying down and, um, yeah, you know, that, that, that idea of there was, a, there was a time or is there, was there only a time when you could go in and ask, like Faisal said, around make some observations based around your faith, like where can I do that? And, you know, I feel uncomfortable because I'm the only black person. It almost feels like you're given these little windows of opportunity to do that in. And if you do it outside of those windows, then you are classified as a, as a general troublemaker. Whereas now people can get black, enough black people to come and talk to them about racism. <laughs> it's amazing. It's so true. I mean, a lot of it comes down to what's a norm in society. And when it's, a not, when it's not a norm in society, it's almost like that should be illegal. They should be arrested or that should definitely be put to one side. You know, a, a good example is Muslims, uh, Muslim women who wear the niqab, which is the face covering. 
And for a long time, in, all, in a lot of countries, but, you know, things like France and the UK, it's been, you know, it's, people have been given fines in public for, for wearing them, or they've, you know, been asked to remove them in certain areas and, uh, and places. But now where, you know, because of a pan global pandemic where we have to wear face coverings in public or in shops or closed environments, it's a norm. And although a year ago you would have seen, you may have looked at a person with a niqab and thought, I'm a bit afraid here because I don't know if you're a man or a woman, for example. Now there's, there's no question, there's no question around it. It's okay. It's completely fine. It's acceptable. It's a norm in society. And it just comes down to that, that change in mindset. And so I guess if we can really push that change in mindset on other topics, we'll see that, we'll see that change almost in instantaneously. Yeah, I thought, well, one, I thought it was a really good point of that use of word troublemaker. I think maybe a lot of people in their chosen fields or work have done everything to not get labelled that because it's like a constant, you know, fear if you speak out but um i also thought it was interesting that you know the two different the polar opposite of workplaces that the one that you felt comfortable to speak to is the people that you related in terms of you know being the same race or religion and i just i just think it's um something to look at that you know if your institute looks you know predominantly white or caucasian that that's something to you have to think about so people have an area to be able to go and ask questions and feel comfortable about you know asking things that relates to them without feeling um alienated from the situation so i guess another question would be what can companies or institutes do more of so that it isn't just looking like a group or you know, to take the action that Chris mentioned earlier. Get on with it. They know what they need to do, don't they? Maybe I'm just feeling super jaded. <laughs> but I just, I just feel there's so much written, there's so much discourse. You know, there's so many podcasts, there's so many, like, there's, like no, nobody can be really scratching that. I mean, they're complicated problems, but there's a lot of clever people who spent a lot of time and effort and energy trying to open up space so people can talk about things and putting material things on the table that could be action and and if we're still in a situation where people are genuinely scratching their heads i think they're only scratching their heads because they're just kind of thought of actually doing something about it I, I can't again i'm probably not the right person to answer this question because i'm just feeling very grumpy about it but it's just been a long year of, of talking about these things and, and people know what needs to be done you know yeah Sorry, somebody else. I completely agree with that. Just get on with it. And if you haven't jumped on the bandwagon already, like, why not? Are you trying to find a loophole to work your way around it or do the bare minimum? I, and I think most, you know, international companies have probably already jumped on the bandwagon and started, you know, supporting this sort of, this, this change. But some are slower than others. Some have, you know, at a higher level, they might have uh, policies in place. But when you go to sort of certain offices and maybe certain parts of the country where the local norm is completely different to what the company thinks of, you can't change that mindset. That's, that has, that's probably the difficult part there. Um, the people that work there essentially drive everything. So you, your company can have all the policies they want. 
but it's really down to the people's mindset. So I think there was something about, you know, diversity and inclusion training, putting examples in front of people. I actually had some training uh, not so long ago within Baker Hughes. And one of the examples they put forward um, was regarding an invite to, I think, some drinks after work. And one of the, one of the employees didn't drink. So he, he, he mentioned to the, the organizer of the event, I don't drink, uh, just in conversation away from the event. And what ended up happening was that the event organizer didn't invite that person to the event because he said in a separate conversation that he doesn't drink. So all of a sudden, you know, you've alienated someone based on a conversation they've had instead of inviting them and giving them the choice to come or not. So I guess it's these kind of situation type training sessions that might benefit people's mindsets and, and help them change. And I think sometimes companies are slow to act because they're very conscious. They, they want to tiptoe around the topic because they want to be risk averse and not face any backlash. But at the same time, again, I think it's down to individuals and how passionate they are about the cause to drive change rather than just sit and talk about it for hours on end. And these boards that have been set up to address diversity and, diversity and inclusion, sometimes they don't take people who are really representative of the whole company. I mean, it doesn't really make sense if the whole board comes from really senior levels and all their opinions aren't filtered through the company down into all levels and then you don't really get the bigger picture of how everyone feels and what the real issues are and what improvements can actually be made yeah it, it, it might say something about you know you've got a black history month podcast by the institute of materials minerals and mining and there's only one black person on the call i, I mean i mean in terms of the panelists um I'm not sure if you identify Faisal or Nicole as being black, but so I'll, just, I'll just qualify that there. But I mean, as an invited panelist, I'm not including Shardell here. Um, it kind of comes to something, right? You probably went awash with black IOM3 members to kind of go and... Because there's been a lot, and the reason I say this is because there's been a lot of talk this year about really focusing on black people. And there's been a lot of recent discussion around the use of terms like BAME and BME, right? There's been and there's kind of like lots of interesting and sometimes hostile discussions around that because you run the risk of taking the focus off very specific challenges to black people. And Faisal, you kind of make this really good point about, you know, black people's experiences are very different to Asian people's experiences, right? In terms of the cultural background, their parenting, you know, what the parental expectations are. And so actually to try and discuss specific challenges to black people with non-black people in some ways is kind of hard i think and that's why you need more black people in the room and like nicole's referring to there in those management levels so that there's an awareness it's not to say it's not to say you can only talk to positively to black issues if you're black at all because we need allies but you know it, it, it is it is kind of curious that sometimes we struggle to fill a, a panel we I completely agree. I mean, I, I remember I made the point to Shardell uh, before we created the podcast and I, and I was completely up for doing the podcast because, you know, I, I, in a way I'm quite passionate about, about the topic. But, you know, it may be that that's a point to make as well because, like you said, not everyone wants to be the face. You know, people are comfortable 
uh, or maybe just worried that they, you know, that again, there might be a bit of backlash or um, for whatever reason, there is pressure added to having this discussion publicly. Uh, and the alternative answer could just be that we just didn't have a wide enough reach and find those people. But I guess there's loads of reasons, but ultimately, yes, there, <laughs> you know, you have one Pakistani um, on the panel uh, talking about Black Lives, uh, or Black History Month. So, yeah. You're doing, a, you're doing a stellar job, of course. But, and, and, and like I said to earlier on, you know, intersectionality is really powerful, of course, because a lot of these issues land differently slightly on different demographics, but there is this common, you know, common challenge there. So, I, you know, I'm always, I'm always a little bit hesitant to have like these, you know, almost like super black things where, you know, I think we need to have those things, but equally there is value to having those, you know, challenge, those, those things discussed in the in the base in the in the context let's say of faith like you just talked to or uh, or you know if we talked about uh, gender as well so yeah absolutely and i was quite nervous about doing this podcast because i don't feel like i am clued up enough on the whole black history and black lives matter movement and so on but i do think that is important to have someone talking about it just to keep it going because otherwise if everyone was too worried about backlash then it'll go quiet and everything would die down no progress would be made yeah and i think absolutely it's useful to hear from non-black people as to what their experiences have been of this year and what their experiences of race you know in, in terms of their own identification of their own race and ethnicity let's say but also then how they felt the media portrayal has been of the black lives matter kind of issues because you know i read it very differently presumably to people who aren't like me and that could and i include in that other black people because other black people have experience this year very differently to me um so i do yeah i think some of what you talked about today for me has been really handy to make me think about other allied issues um and, and you know your perspective of how in the industrial arena things are being done or not done well i think you know having this conversation obviously I think it's interesting to have different perspectives um, across the board. So I also appreciate you guys um, giving your time to give your perspectives because I, you know, I think when you do have the mix and then it gives you a more like broader idea of what, you know, people of color are facing as a collective. Um, but yeah, just to, you know, end on a note to once again, celebrate, Black history, um, I just thought it would be a really nice idea if you could um, all give uh, an example of a book or literature or some documentary of something that you thought was inspiring. I'll go for a different slant and recommend a podcast episode. So it's an episode of I Way by Jamila Jamil, who, where she talks to Ibram Kendi about race. So Ibram Kendi is a professor and historian of uh, black history and race and so on and they talk about how politics and race is really interwoven and you can't really expect change to happen if you don't get involved with politics and even if that involvement is just voting it's really important to be clued up on the bigger picture of all the impacts that politics has on race whether it's obvious or not. So my my choice was a film and a book actually which my wife introduced me to called Just Mercy and it's a 
biographical film by um, a lawyer, human rights lawyer, essentially called uh, Brian Stevenson. So um, he he was and remains famous for taking on these pro bono cases where there'd been miscarriages of justice against black people, predominantly in, in you know, quite often in the southern states of America. So um, he came from a very sort of working class background and went, I think it was Harvard Law. And, um, you know, then he kind of, you know, turned his nose up at these higher paid kind of, you know, kind of more commercial roles and went and fought for all these um, black people on, mainly were on death row, actually. So the film is around this, um, this man called Walter McMillan, who's on, who's on death row. And it's about his relationship Brian Stevenson's relationship with Walter McMillan, but also a lot of the other inmates who were on death row. And it's an incredibly powerful um, film, because I watched the film and I'm going to read the book. Um, it just lays bare the, the, the horrific systemic racism, which is literally upheld at the very, very top levels of power and is like saturated in everything. In, in like, you know, there's, there's discussions about you know, when they're in court and they're talking about like what the witnesses have seen or the witnesses were white. And they were like, well, there was some like black guy, you know, and that was enough. But there were 30 people who were there testi- testifying that this guy didn't do it. He, were all, he was with 30 people when this crime happened. And they just like dismissed like the, the witness testimony of 30 black people. I mean, it's just unbelievable. It's one of these films that's incredibly hard to watch uh, and, 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 and incredibly upsetting, not least because it's, that probably still happens. <laughs> You know that 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 sort of stuff is still going on, varying in varying ways in different places. But that that racism is still very much alive and well, not just in the US, but probably quite well, undoubtedly globally. So yeah, that was my my pick. It's highly recommended. Called Just Mercy. I, I feel pretty triggered just <laughs> listening to that already. But yeah, it sounds like one of those things that is um, it is hard, but also necessary just to get the gravitas of systemic racism. Um, Faisal, what was your pick? Yeah, sure. So, so my pick, uh, I have a film on Netflix called The Boy Who Harnessed the Wind. Uh, it's based on a book by the actual inventor, a chap named William Kamkwamba. So basically he made several windmills um, in his Malawian village to provide his family and his village with electricity and an irrigation system. And basically the story follows him through his early life where his family's, you know, sort of born into poverty. Uh, They're the the farmers and that, you know, they're hit by a terrible drought and famine uh, and it destroys their crops and it kills lots of people. And because of the famine, the kid is forced to drop secondary school because his father can no longer pay his fees. Um, through his determination, he goes and visits a local library, which is funded by Americans, uh, and he falls in love with science. And he finds this book called Using Energy. And that book discusses electromagnetism, simple motors, and electricity. And from that, he finds sort of scraps of metal, bicycle parts, and creates a dynamo. And from that, basic sort of uh, creation he makes a makeshift wind turbine and the sort the story sort of follows his struggles and the fact that in so many different uh, you know similar to you know Percy he he got several knockbacks and most of them were from his family saying no don't study you need to come and work because we have no money and no way of feeding ourselves and our family instead he would sort of creep out at night and 
you know, go and fix certain electric components just to build his knowledge. And soon enough, obviously, he builds this wind, windmill and everyone's amazed in the village that he's done this. And you, you think it's out of the blue. And there's lots of people like him. And following on from that, I sort of did a bit of reading around him. And um, he went to a, uh, a convention in Ghana uh, where Africa's great talent was on display. And there are a few people from uh, that were there and they invented lots of amazing things. For example, uh, there was a chap called uh, Shams Shamsuddin uh, who used scrap metal to invent a simple maize seed planter modeled after a medicine pill dispenser that increases a farmer's planting speed threefold. Another chap from uh, Somalian descent created an evapocooler using an iron sheet box that uses water evaporation to keep camel's milk cool, allowing herders to transport it to markets in very hot conditions. And so when we're talking about innovation, these are the kind of innovations that you wouldn't come up with in the UK or at top universities. These are on the ground where people are really facing the real life challenges and coming up with new ways uh, to make things a lot easier for them and their family and, and the community. So it's a great story about uh, someone who really struggled and uh, came to, you know, really do some great work. Thank you. I think that ties really nicely back into, you know, with Percy as well. And just to highlighting, you know, the resilience of black excellence, we could say. But yeah, I just want to thank you guys very much for coming here and not only just like sharing perspectives, but also your own experiences. Um, it's very much appreciated. And also, thank you for listening. Bye. Thank you, guys. For more information about us, visit iom3.org. Or to keep up to date with our latest news, follow us on social media using at iom3 on Twitter and at the Institute of Materials, Minerals and Mining on LinkedIn. If you're interested in our upcoming podcasts or want to get involved, please subscribe to hear more from us through Apple, Google Podcasts or Spotify.